0: Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and again, we raise Pastor Bill up to you as we miss him dearly not being here today, Lord, and we just pray that this day would be a great day for your word, and your word would be a light unto our feet and a lamp unto the way that we go, and we thank you for all these things as we come to celebrate Jesus' birthday very soon, and a time of great joy and a time of great giving by the Father to us from heaven, so we we just give you the praise, the honor, and the glory today and forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right. I really like that clock back there. I call it Bill's Shot Clock because it winds down, you know. It's like a basketball. You're going for the last shot. And you're looking at the end of, of teaching and say, okay, I got 32 seconds left or something like that. And it kind of works that way. Um, previously in chapters 1 through 4 of Exodus, we studied the preparation, the characteristics, and the call associated with the call of God upon all of our lives. So the next installment is really answering the call. How do you answer the call? And we're going to use a great example for that in Moses as he answers the call. In Moses' case, his preparation was 40 years as a prince and 40 years as a shepherd. Kind of an interesting comp- uh, comparison. Um, his, res- his response with reservations when God asked him to do things, God's response was giving Moses um, an answer to that. And, and now the beginning of Moses answering the call of the Lord to return to Egypt And petitioned for the release of the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt. These are millions of people. And it's not not an easy job. God is calling a special man to go to a special place to do a special thing for him. So just to give a little history. In chapter 4 we saw the following. While in Midian Moses received God's call. Or commission and return to Egypt, and lead Israel free from bondage. And then, adhering God's instructions, Moses asked questions and raised objections. He says, "You know, is this really for me? Do I really want to go back?" And God answered the questions, uh, rebutting the objections, and gave Moses assurances, different things he would do for him. So all that remains. For Moses is for Moses to obey the word of the Lord. So Moses makes arrangement to leave Midian, as we see in Exodus chapter 4, verse 18. Then Moses departs and returns to Jethro, his father-in-law, who was his elder, and said to him, please let me go that I may return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see if they are still alive. So he wanted to uh, get the blessing of his father-in-law. Before he went, that was a smart thing to do, you know. Um, And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. So maybe that settled his heart down a little bit, you know. We don't know what form the Lord took in the appearance, but the message he delivers Moses is clear enough. You know, was it direct? Was it indirect? Was it a voice? What was it? And the Lord repeats the instructions for Moses to go back because the Pharaoh... um, who was seeking Moses' life is now dead. He passed away. So this is a different Pharaoh. So why did God give Moses the second appearance, I wonder? To remind him? To kind of reinforce him? What would that be? You know how we work with our kids, grandkids, and even between husband and wife, we kind of do these kind of things. Perhaps Moses was wavering in in his determination to obey God. Maybe it was kind of, well, maybe yes, maybe no. You know, there's, there's some big uh, decisions to make on something like that. It Works the same way with us when God calls us to something, you know. Kind of weigh it out and you think, oh, well, this can happen or i got to leave my family or whatever it might be. So if so, then this moment is an encouraging example of God's persistence. God keeps on coming after us. And his patience in compensating for our weakness in responding to God's call. The Lord himself compensates for us. He gives us more information. You know, he puts his arm around us, gives us a hug, and sends us out. So if God has called us to accomplish something in his name, then we can trust he'll equip us to meet the demands of the call. God will never call us to something that he isn't going to equip us for. It might take a while. We might have some setbacks, But he's there, and he's always there. He's got you by the hand, and he's leading you along. So, equipping means not only talents and gifts for his work, but also focus, conviction, and urgency to stick with the mission. You know, there is an urgency to get things done for the Lord, especially today in this world. There's so many people going by the wayside every day. If Moses were reconsidering departing Midian, God's second appearance ensured Moses put all doubts aside. Moses had no idea. He hadn't seen these people. He didn't know them. He didn't know what they were like. He didn't know their personalities. He didn't know anything except that they were slaves. They were part of the nation that he was to lead. And that was it. You know, typically you like to kind of embrace people, check them out, see what's going on, that kind of thing. But he didn't have that. The Lord assured him that things were going to be a certain way. And I think we all benefit from this kind of prodding. God's equipping will always be sufficient to meet the demands of our mission. They never, ever, never fall short. They're always there. So now the Lord appears to Moses a third time, you know, and as he's traveling to Egypt. In this appearance, the Lord reminds Moses to perform all the signs God required. In other words, I showed you these things. This thing happened with your staff. Things were going on, all the rod. And God gave these wonders and powers to Moses for specific reasons. You know, he was going to use them. And the people on the other side in Egypt had the same kind of response as you see later in, in Exodus. But nothing as powerful as what God can give man to overcome Satan. Nothing. By the same token, when we obey our call, following the Spirit's lead, and use the gifts God has given us, are we, ass- are we assured everything will work out <clears throat> smoothly? Why not? Everything doesn't always go well. You know, there's stumbles along the way, there's things, there's things you would never think about. But the minute it happens, you say, Lord, you got it. Help me out. Let's, let's move ahead. So God tells, Um, uh, Moses he will harden Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh will not allow Israel to leave this is interesting he's sending them there to ask the people to leave but God's already telling them that he's going to harden the heart of Pharaoh so that he won't allow them to leave he was sent with a mission to free Israel and God gave Moses a promise that this mission would succeed didn't say when but it would succeed at some point in time. So God even gave Moses special powers to ensure that Pharaoh pays heed to Moses' message, something that would catch his eye. You know, he didn't know Moses. He'd never seen him before. So what's going to happen is maybe he'll look up his history or something, and find out he was there before or whatever it was. Um, but now God tells Moses he will be working behind the scenes to prevent Pharaoh from responding affirmatively. But that's a good heads-up for him because when it happens, it helps him not to be discouraged. It gives him, you know, more to go, more impetus to move ahead. So throughout the entire account of the Exodus, the Bible has 20 mentions of Pharaoh's heart being hardened. Ten times God hardens his heart. Ten times God doesn't. Four times Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And then there's another six that we kind of don't know exactly what the cause of this is, but we know it's the same thing. The outcome's the same. He hardens his heart 20 times. This is how stubborn this guy is. And finally, we see Moses and Aaron announce deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt to the elders of Israel. This is where chapter 4 ends. And then they show him, the elders, the signs and the wonders so that they can see them so he can get their support, which they give to him, and they can trust him. So God even takes care of the people on the other side in a way by giving them information and giving them a way that what's going to happen going ahead and what things are going to be used. So now we arrive at Exodus chapter 5, kind of a long introduction, but it kind of sets the stage for exactly what's going to happen as Moses enters Egypt. So Moses and Aaron now are at the implementing the call of the Lord. They're putting it into practice. They're putting it into play. So Exodus 5, one through five 5.9, Exodus 5.1 and afterward, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and besides, will not let Israel go. He said the truth. He doesn't know this Lord. There's a, a bazillion gods in, in Egypt, you know. This is just another one in his head, another of hundreds, hundreds. So in verse 5, 3, it says, Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met us. Please let us go a 3 days journey, which would take them to the edge of the country and right next to Canaan. And probably, you know, stones throw away, they could cross over. um, Into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Otherwise, he will fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Verse 4, but the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you draw a people away from their work? Get back to your labors. His only thought is he's losing his free, free labor, okay, for three days or more. So Aaron, again, Aaron, uh, Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are now many, and you would have them cease from, from their labors. And in verse 5, 6, So the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters over the people in their foremen, saying, You are no longer to give the people straw to make brick, as previously. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. So it's going to make it difficult now. He's going to try to bring the people against Moses. Stirring it up, you know, stirring the pot. You know, Moses and Aaron are two people. All these other millions of people he's bringing against them or he's trying to. So in verse 5, sentence it You are no longer to give the people straw to make bricks. As previously, let them go and gather straw for themselves. That's a tough job. You know, usually the straw is there and the straw has a purpose. It strengthens the bricks. But the quota of the bricks which they are making previously, you shall impose on them. You're not to reduce any of it because they are lazy. Therefore, they cry out, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. This is his interpretation of what they want to go sacrifice for. They're lazy. They don't want to work. And he's looking for his quota. He's some kind of like manufacturing manager looking for the quota of so many things that you make in a factory at the end of the month. And at the end of the month, it gets kind of crazy, right? And this is what's in his mind. But the quota of bricks which they were making previously, you shall impose on them. You're not to reduce any of it because they are lazy. Therefore, they cry out, let us go sacrifice to the Lord. That's not the intent at all. And then finally in verse 9, it says, let the labor be heavier on the men. And let them work at it so they will pay no attention to the false words. So he's telling everybody these are false words. And notice he brought in... um, Uh, the the taskmaster and the foreman. So that's significant. So now in chapter 5 we see Moses has his initial encounter with Pharaoh, Amenhotep II. Moses speaking through Aaron demands that Pharaoh let Israel go to the wilderness and celebrate a priest. It wasn't a request, it was a demand. This is what my God wants. This request was the only one God directed Moses to deliver to Pharaoh at that time. Simple, straightforward, right to the point. Asking to walk a three-day journey into the wilderness mean walking to the Egyptian border with Canaan. So they could just sneak across the border. How can you get a million people to sneak across the border, right? It would be difficult. Imagine if the slaves of a southern plantation in the U.S., this is way back in the day, asked their master to allow them to travel to the Mason-Dixon line to serve the Lord, which is right there at Maryland and Pennsylvania. They'd be gone. They'd cross the line. They'd be free. They're in the north. Everything would be great. The slave master would have understood he would never expect to see those slaves return. Why? They saw freedom. Anybody that goes for freedom and it's a step away is going to run into freedom. This is the way it works. Similarly, the pharaoh knew such a journey would mean the end of his plentiful pool of cheap labor. It was pretty cheap. I don't think he was paying them. I think he was giving them a place to stay and as little food as he could to keep him alive, you know, that kind of thing. So therefore, the Pharaoh's response to Moses and Aaron was entirely expected and logical. Pharaoh begins by declaring he has never heard of a God called Lord, and therefore he had no need to obey a God. You know, he, he went with the gods that he knew, many of them. No doubt this was true. Egypt had over 80 gods, but none were known by this name. This is the unique name of the only God that ever stands in this world, this universe, and beyond, right? So, after Pharaoh's initial refusal, Aaron persists adding that the Jews were required to obey the Lord, lest he bring judgment. This is a hint of what's going to come if you don't allow um, the slaves to go. Interestingly, Moses was actually aware of the relationship between disobedience and God's wrath uh, as a result of failing to circumcise his son. On the way there, the Lord appeared, and his wife uh, took the, the task of, of circumcising their son because uh, he didn't keep with the law of keeping things a certain way before they were moving to go to Egypt. And uh, um, his wife, support jumped up and took care of everything, and the Lord kind of backed off on, on whatever he was going to do. Uh, Aaron's statement to Pharaoh is interesting because it serves as a prophetic warning to Pharaoh himself. And we know as you go through the rest of the different chapters in, in Exodus that there's going to be one thing after another after another, and they all get worse and they all add up, and it's just basically kind of hell on earth, uh, Pharaoh will experience the judgment of God for failure to comply. But God has hardened his heart, so maybe God wanted him to experience those at that time. And Pharaoh will experience the judgment for failure to comply. So not only does Pharaoh know God's will, but he also understands that failure to comply will bring judgment. You think that would make somebody come up with a good decision? You know, you see both sides of it. You say, oh, yeah, I see this side, I see that side. This is the decision I'm going to make, what's good for all. This guy, his head was like a cement block. He didn't have heart. He didn't have feelings. He didn't have the emotion for any of these people. You know, they would just served a purpose to build cement blocks. And so he could build the, the things that he was going to do for himself. So... Pharaoh still denies Moses' request, just as God said would happen. But what God didn't tell Moses was Pharaoh would react harshly to the request. didn't tell him that side of it. So this is new to Moses and Aaron. Pharaoh brings a retribution against the Hebrews as a result of Moses' request. You're going to have to go get your own straw. And that must have taken a lot of work and a long way to go and a lot of people to do it. It took away from the primary business of making things at that place and getting it done. Excuse me. So Pharaoh commands that the Hebrews would no longer have straw provided for the making of bricks. So straw was actually the binding agent in clay bricks. And without straw, the bricks would be brittle and useless. So they would be making a lot of this for nothing. And that would add another burden on them to have to make more and double time and double quota and stuff like this, so previously the Hebrews had straw provided to them, but now this would cease it wasn 't going to happen. The Hebrews would have to go throughout the land collecting their own straw and you know i don 't know what the land looked like in those days, but you know it 's one thing to harvest it ahead of time and bring it in and bring it to where you 're at versus going out there and starting pulling it out of the ground so this required considerable time and effort and reduced the labor and time with the slaves. Nevertheless, the daily quota for bricks remained the same. He kept them still at whatever that number was, okay, knowing there was no way they could do it. So then he could turn around and really, you know, uh, do some bad things to them. So Pharaoh linked the Jews' harsh circumstances to Aaron's, Moses' actions, he One to one. So he wanted the people to think it was Moses' fault. And it wasn't. He was just a messenger with the news. So as a result, the people would then reject Moses and Aaron's leadership and refuse to follow them out. This was his whole thought. This is often the technique of despots trying to hold on to power. We see it all over the world. Same thing goes on today in different countries and nations. People are slaves. You know, and you can see it in Saudi Arabia. The slaves over there are Indians coming from India, and they are really slaves. They just they they live in uh, common quarters. They do things that they have to do. They all the dirty work that people don't else uh, and the Saudis don't want to do. You don't hear about that kind of stuff. And throughout the world, you can name a, a continent that there is slave going on slavery. So by settling, setting their opponents against one another, the king can weaken the resolve of the opposition and try to get a a break in it. This is going to be a challenge for Moses and Aaron. But any time you go into ministry, it's a challenge. When you go out to whatever it is, it doesn't matter what it is. There's nothing large, nothing small, nothing insignificant, nothing so great that we don't need God's help and direction for. So this is kind of one of the things to be thinking about as we read through this. Um, so we'll pick it up in uh, verse 10. So the taskmasters of the people and their foremen went out and spoke to the people saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I am not going to give you any straw. So he we went out to the taskmasters and the foreman. These are key people. The taskmaster worked for Pharaoh, and the foreman was a Jew that led the people in groups like a supervisor. So we're going to see who he's going to beat. He's going to beat the foreman. You know, you can go and get straw for yourselves wherever you can find it, but none of your labor will be reduced, in verse 11. Verse 12, so the people scattered through all the land of Israel to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters pressed them, saying... Complete your work quota, your daily amount, just as what you had. They're, you know, yelling and screaming, whatever they were doing. Maybe they had whips, I don't know. They were there just, you know, threatening these people. And moreover, the foremen of the Sons of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not completed your required amount, either yesterday or today in making brick as previously? It's turmoil. That's what he wants. He wants these people to see that he's beating up the leaders that are asking them to work. And it puts a fear in the heart of people sometimes. So then the foreman of the sons of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh saying, Why do you deal this way with your servants? You know, what's what's going on? What's up with this? Um, there's no straw given to your servants, yet they keep saying to us, Make bricks, get it done, let's go. And behold, your servants are being beaten, but it is the fault of your own people. So it keeps on going back. But he said, you are lazy, very lazy, therefore you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. You know, trying to make it something it wasn't. So now, so go now and work, for you will be given no straw, yet you must deliver the quota of bricks. It's not going away. The foreman of the sons of Israel saw that they were in trouble, because they were told you must not... Reduce your daily numbers of bricks. So the foremen are wondering, what are we going to do? How do we how do we win this thing? How do we make this thing better? In verse 20, when they left Pharaoh's presence, they met Moses and Aaron as they were waiting for him. So now they're going to express things to Moses and Aaron and how they feel. They said to him, may the Lord look upon you and judge you, for you have made us odious in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. So Pharaoh's kind of winning the argument here. He's got them coming against the two leaders and Moses and Aaron. And then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? He needs an answer. He's confused. Why did you ever send me? What's this mission here? Why did I go on this? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done harm to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. It's kind of a, 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 an interesting thing to say to God, you know, after God sent you out there. But he's starting to get taken away from the mission and what it was. And this can happen even in different kinds of circumstances when you go out to do ministry for the Lord. We're going to get to that in a minute. But the Egyptians had three levels of authority ruling over the Hebrew slaves. Officers, taskmasters, and foremen The officers and taskmasters were Egyptians. The foremen, however, were Jews appointed to oversee. And the, naturally, the extra work made it impossible for the Jews to meet their daily quota for bricks. Um, as a result, the Egyptian taskmasters began beating the Jewish foremen. So not all the Jews were beaten, but the foremen. They didn't beat the people that were making the bricks. But the foremen were as punishment for the Jews' failure to meet the quota. They probably didn't have enough people to beat the nation of Israel, one by one at that time. To the foreman, the new situation makes no sense. So they go to Pharaoh, hoping to reason with him. And nothing's going to reason with Pharaoh because his his heart is hard. They want to know why Pharaoh would make their job harder. Since it wasn't in Pharaoh's own interest to show their work, Pharaoh gives them the reason for it. And Moses' request to let the Jews go in the desert meant the slaves were lazy and had to spare time. So the Pharaoh places the blame at Moses' feet, so the foremen fall for Pharaoh's trick, and they meet with Moses and Aaron. In verse 21, they tell Moses and Aaron that God will judge them for bringing this outcome. The meeting disturbs Moses greatly, so he goes before the Lord and laments the situation. Moses was expecting to bring a blessing and a relief to people. His outlook was, look, I'm going to be a hero. I'm going to go in there and save these people. Furthermore, Moses began to prejudge the outcome of God's work. This is something we should never do is prejudge God's work because we can't see the end of it. We don't know what's going to happen after that moment, that day, or whatever it is. In verse 23, Moses accuses God of not delivering the people as God promised. Isn't it remarkable how quickly Moses lost his composure despite... The assurances and prophetic knowledge God gave Moses before he went. He's starting to get into the flesh. He's starting to listen to himself. So Moses assumed his arrival would mean great relief. Probably expected he would be met by cheering crowds, hosting him up high, leading him around, you know, like we see in sports and stuff like this at the end of a big game, you know, people look at the heroes. It wasn't going to be that way. Instead, they're cursing his name. Whew, that's pretty heavy. He's wondering, why did I get this job? So God calls us to serve people. Moses was called to serve. He didn't know all the details. He knew some of them. This is like when God sends us out to answer the call that he's given us. We may hope to bring a blessing to people through our service, but too often we equate blessing with physical or emotional comfort or some material benefit, you know. It's like I'm going to go out and start a church and it's going to grow to 10,000 people, whatever it might be, you know. But that shouldn't be the thought at all. The thought is to go out and start a ministry and see how God leads and God directs in anything that you do, even going uh, on missions trips. shouldn't have a predetermined idea. Let God do the work. Let you take it and do what... You're supposed to do. That's that's what all of us are supposed to do. But the Bible equates blessings with suffering, hardship, persecution, testing, trials, and self sacrifice. These are all things that happen when we start serving the Lord because the enemy doesn't want us there. The enemy wants to take us out. And where does he go for first, physical or mental? He comes right after us. And he wants to discourage us, he wants us to turn around. But what do we do then? We should look at the Lord and say, Lord, 911, I need your help. I need where you are. I need to, you to, you know, do whatever it is I need to do to, to do this ministry. Um, though we serve a lead, may not always like what God calls us to deliver, whether in what we say or call them to do, but don't let th- that distract us. You know, there's certain things going on. You keep to the ministry. You keep to the road that God put us on. Uh, those we serve a lead may not always like what God calls us to deliver, you know, and what we say or call them to do, but don't let that distract you. Um, I can give you a great example of that. There's a woman down in Ocean Beach, um, a Greek lady, that um, she was a concert pianist and she was a uh, lawyer. And she was excellent in both of those. And the Lord told her and gave her the mission of living in a bitty, little bitty house in Ocean Beach um, and and doing evangelism. She would go out every day on the streets, and everybody knew her. And she would go down to the end of the, the road down there in Ocean Beach where people park at night knocking on the windows. I saw her do it, you know. And the and guys would say, hey, we got to go help her. No, 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 no. Stay out of her way. She has the Holy Spirit. God's at her side. All we can do is mess this up. But she would go all over the place. But she, even though she was highly educated, she stuck with the word of God. And she gave people the word of God. She spoke in the word of God. If she wanted to tell you she loved you, she gave you verses from the Bible that said how much God loves you. One night I had the occasion to go to the, um, there's a store down there, um, from, um, it's a, like a South American store. And they sell certain types of food. And this is after church one night. And she said, can you take me to the store? And then I got to go to the 99 cent store. And I said, sure. So I went, we went in the, um, the market and she's picking out, um, watermelon. And letting this guy cut up all sorts of watermelon. She left me at the counter and says, you speak to this woman. She's a, a, a Christian scientist. She doesn't believe in the, the blood of Jesus Christ. <laughs> it left me. And I'm standing there like, oh, man. You know, where are you? Cleo is her name. And um, she's back there. And I'm telling the lady, you know, she really has to understand what the blood body and blood of Jesus Christ is. Comes back. We go to the 99 cent store. We walk in. She's looking for glasses. She says, hi, Sid. He's a Jewish guy. He says, oh, hi, Cleo. How's things going? He says, are you still living with your uh, girlfriend? And he says, yes. She says, fornicator. <laughs> and now I'm ready to run for my car. I've, i got to get out of here. And she says, you take care of him while I go get my glasses. And I said, hey, I can tell you this, Sid. She loves you dearly. He says, I know, I know. But I said, she's telling the truth. You know, you really need to look at that in your life. But this is the ministry. This is how things work. Sometimes it doesn't look the same. Ministry isn't a popularity contest all the time. You've got to tell people certain things, certain times. As a pastor of a church, Bill has huge responsibility. And he has things that are difficult, very difficult sometimes. And Patty has the same thing going. You know, with the women in the church and stuff like this, and you learn 26 years and being the pastor and the pastor's wife, I'm sure they could write a book and they could, you know, enlighten us on the, on the different things that have happened and, and been dealt with. So our leaders bear the worst of the burden because they're walking point. They're out there like in the army. You have a squad, a guy walks point, draws the enemy fire first off right away. So. They must serve as examples of truth in their own lives, as those we all do, with the unenviable task of calling others to live likewise. Moses and Aaron can't make excuses for their words and actions. Now, can they remove these burdens from the people? They can't soften the message or back down. What is happening is God's will. And if it's God's will, we've got to carry it out. We've got to make it happen. He's the one making it happen. All we've got to do is deliver it. Unfortunately, some leaders choose um, the easy path with their people rather than declaring the reality of sin. They need to crucify the flesh. They tickle ears. You know, we teaching. We see that in the Bible, you know. There's pastors and teachers out there that are teaching, you know, what they like to hear, what people want to hear. One thing about Calvary Chapel is you go verse by verse through the Bible and give the full counsel of the Word of God. That's what Pastor Bill has given us. We're blessed. Not every church does that. We learn the whole scope, the whole thing about what's going on in that Bible. Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant, right down the list. So when we make the spiritual walk of the, those we lead easier beyond what God permits, we do them as serious disservice. If it says one thing in the Bible, then that's what we have to say it is. You can't water it down. You can't say it's something different. So otherwise we bring... You know judgment on ourselves for doing that for not following what God told us to do, so how do we how can we relate all this to the call in our lives? How about with the great commission and you know this uh, the last verse in matthew matthew twenty eight nineteen and twenty um, describes what that is. One of the most important texts in Scripture, and this has been given to all of us. I know Matthew was written to the Jews and things like this, but this falls into our lap too, of the great commission, the great call to go out into the world. Every one of us has got that. And in the final moments on earth with the disciples, Jesus sends them out, their call with these words Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. That call is ours. We have to accept it. We have to own it. We have to understand it. The gospel needs to be delivered around the world, including in our own backyard. Lakeside. The lake across the street. The hardware store doesn't matter where, Santee, you're shopping down in Fashion Valley, get an opportunity to open up about the word of God, you open up. You witness to people. You give them your example. You give them the word that you know. So um, as important as it is to understand what Jesus calls us to do, knowing how we're able to obey this calling is perhaps the most important part of the Great Commission. How are we going to obey? How are we going to do this? Before and after the text quoted above, Jesus gives us two important truths. Truths without which we would have no hope of accomplishing the task He has given us any task. In verse 18, Jesus declares, "All authority." This is 18 in, in Matthew, Matthew 28:18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. In the second half of verse 20, Jesus pr- In Matthew Matthew uh, chapter 28, verse 20, Jesus promises us, I am with you always to the end of the age. He's there. Though we tend to focus on what the Great Commission demands of us, we see what Jesus wanted his disciples to understand first is that it was only by his authority and continuing presence that they would be successful in carrying this out. Had to be dependent on him had to listen to him and carrying out the tasks all over the world so Jesus begins the great commission with authority by declaring that we, God has given him all authority and in heaven and on earth um, and he will never leave us nor forsake us so we see that also so in Acts 1.8 to his promise the spirit he promised the Spirit would be dwelling in us. We would be filled with both the presence and the power of Christ as the gospel message is put out there. You don't have to worry. He's there. And it was going to go from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Has it gone to the ends of the earth today? I don't know. But it's sure going to be a lot easier today with all the different electronics and you know, video and all this other stuff. And this thing's going on where perhaps it's being developed where The whole world can buy this one thing and they can listen to it and the whole world's going to hear what's going on from that transition point. Our obedience to the Great Commission is only possible because Jesus has supplied everything. We just need to obey it. He's going to arm us with everything we need. So as we seek to be faithful followers by proclaiming his gospel, making disciples, let's not be too quick to remind ourselves that Everything we do for Christ is done by his authority and through his presence in our lives. It isn't us. We don't do this. And I know I'm preaching to the choir and saying that in here, but it's really true. And we can never take a pat on the back for it. You know, it's God, it's Jesus, it's him. Everything that moves in that direction is him. Can't forget that. We've been given the sacred privilege of joining Christ in his work. He, has to, you know, he gives it to us. It's a privilege. Spreading the name and making his disciples all over the world. And we can see that going on today. It's been going on for years. And because he sends us out in the authority of his Father and in the company of his Spirit, we have all we need to obey him wherever he leads us. We don't need anything else. He's going to give us things that we need and that we have and that we can take and we can run with them. So what's part of, finally, we'll, we'll finish with all of this, is that finally God's plan for our life. What's, what's part of that? What's the most important aspects of that? And number one is be in prayer. Number one, be talking to Jesus, to the power of the Holy Spirit, that he opens up our hearts every day. Pray to God. And he gives us different things to pray for every day. And goodness knows we have enough stuff in our families to pray for, as well as outside our families, you know, where we work, where we come to church. You know, we get notes that say, hey, pray for so-and-so. They just went in the hospital or they had an operation. That's great. That's awesome because now you know how to pray for people, you know. Um, Just like we prayed for Pastor Bill this morning. Why? We want to see God heal him today. Come on, Lord, let's go. He needs to get that Energizer Bunny thing going again because that's how he operates. That man is slow in nothing. He is just dynamic. I've seen him work. You know, he puts his head down and it's like, there's steam coming out. You know, it's great. It's wonderful to see. But prayer is such a blessing that we have. And and we we should plan for it. You know, I know that i 'm a big one for lists, for two reasons: I need the list, and i 'll forget half of what's on the list if I don't put it on the list. okay So you might think about that making a list, and I 'm sure a lot of people in here do that. you know it's like here it is, they roll out a scroll, you know, and the, and there it is. so important. So the second thing is be actively reading in the word, be in the word every day. You know, you can read through the Bible in a year. You can have that thing. Or you can just decide which way you want to read the Bible on a given day. You know, but be in the Word every day because the Word is going to speak to us. It's going to give us answers to things of what we've been praying about. You know, all of a sudden we've been praying for a couple weeks for something, and there it is. Wow, it's right there. It just jumped out. Or praying for something in our family, and then praying for it and praying for it and saying, please give an opening for that. And about a week later, my wife will come in and start talking about that subject. Be like, wow, awesome. Now I can start approaching what I need to approach, Lord, both of us, you know. And that's how it should work. So it's one thing to go to church on Sunday and listen to the word, which is great, which is, really should do, be in fellowship, and hear the pastor's sermon. But you should take time to devote time in the Word of God every day. Um, whatever God will allow you to do that, God willing, what it is. You know, it could be long, it could be short, some days could be longer, but always be in there. The third thing is to follow the commands He puts in your heart. There's things that God puts in our heart. And you know it's there and you can hear it. There's a little voice that's talking to you, you know, whatever that is. Happens with people, you know. It might be say, "Hey, just walk up and tell them you love them." Oh, I don't want a Lord. I don't like them. <laughs> okay, well, do it anyways. See what happens. You know, it's like pouring coals. The Bible says, "Heap of coals on somebody's head." They don't know how to take it. Um, John Corson had a had a thing that he used to say. He treated everybody like a Christian. Everybody. You knew people weren't Christians and say, hey, my family's going through this right now. Would you keep them in prayer? Would you help us with the prayer and stuff like this? And people's jaws would be like, "Uh uh-huh, okay. Then it might pour over to like, how do I pray? Bingo, the door's open. You can walk in and you can start witnessing and doing something. So the fourth thing is seek a godly community. That's this church. This is a godly community. This is godly people in a place that God drew us together. We have different teachings going on with the women and the men, and it's it's great. I mean, it's fun. I mean, we do things on Monday night that we have a we have as much laughter as we do just even reading the Word of God because we're joyed by it by the people and we encourage each other. Saturday morning is interesting with the guys here. You know, there's always something. and We always end up going down some rabbit hole. You know, we have Nate. All right. Nate is great. And we're going to help Nate write a book. It's going to be The World According to Nate. All right. We can all help him. He's beautiful. He's a wonderful guy. We are blessed by his presence here. So finally... The last thing is obey the truth. Know what's written in the Bible and follow the way God calls us to live. And sometimes the Holy Spirit will prod us a little bit in something that we're doing. And say, oh, I'm going the wrong way. Let me go back in and look what God requires of me. And you look and say, oh, okay. This is what he requires. This is what he wants. This is how he's directed me to live. And he knew the shortcomings like Moses had, and uh, he called them to lead the the nation of Israel and stand up before Pharaoh. We don't have anything quite that big at this time, but if God has placed the desire of getting out to serve Him on your heart and we're sitting on our hands, then we're disobeying God. You should get out there and do it, and don't be afraid he will take care of everything he'll lead the way follow the way step of the way hold you by the hand and bring you to exactly where you gotta go and what you gotta say you know and then, and that's the way it works he'll be there walk alongside and aid us in the areas of our shortcomings we saw that with Moses why shouldn't he do that with us so let's pray Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you for your book called the Bible that you've given us, that we have such a roadmap for our life. We thank you for Jesus as we come to celebrate his birth here this coming weekend, and we look forward to that, Lord. And we just don't have a cake big enough to put all the candles on, Lord. But we want to say in our hearts collectively we have that, and we just give you the praise, the honor, and the glory. For all these things, please bless this church, bless our pastor and his wife, and continue to have us serve in the way that you would like us to serve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.